Hey everyone, my name is Dustin Elliott and welcome back to another episode of the Better Questions Better Life podcast, formerly known as the Y2 podcast. Each week I try and answer a simple but important question, how can we ask better questions to live better lives? To do that, I bring you dedicated episodes where I break this question down into bite-sized, thought-provoking and tactical episodes really focused on helping you ask better questions, pulled from industry experts, science, philosophy, as well as my own observations and learnings. I also find and interview a range of industry-leading professionals who all depend on asking good questions in order to achieve their work. So from police detectives, journalists, scientists, medical professionals, qualitative researchers, data scientists, and many more to glean the lessons and techniques they use to successfully do their job and help us ask better questions. As always, I want to take a quick minute and thank the Better Questions, Better Life podcast sponsor, YZ. YZ is an easy-to-use online training software that makes it so simple to create and deliver online learning. The YZ platform is very flexible and you can use it to automate a whole range of tasks in your business from managing all of your employee training, training customers and partners in your products, tracking licenses and qualifications of your staff, creating and selling online courses, capturing more leads with free online courses and so much more. So if any of that sounds even remotely interesting, then I really suggest you jump over to their website at yz.com, that's w-y-z-e-d.com, to check out some videos and even get started with your own 14-day free trial. Remember, if you like these episodes and you want to hear more and you haven't done already, make sure you hit that subscribe button to the Better Questions, Better Life podcast, wherever you find your podcast. The button ain't going to hit itself, so make sure you do that if you like it. And as you hear on every other podcast out there, we love if you can leave us a five-star review if you haven't already. Of course, you can jump over to the website at betterquestionsbetterlife.co where you can find links, resources, soon to be a blog, putting together some really cool projects as well at the moment uh, to help you ask better questions outside of the podcast and all that other good stuff. So make sure you check it out and stay tuned. Of course, you can always join in on the conversation on our Facebook page, Instagram, and the other social media handles. And you're going to find us at Better Questions Better Life. Uh, you can also follow along on social media media and because uh, if that if that uh, name's a little too long then we're going to try and dominate the hashtag bqbl so hopefully we're going to blow that up with lots of really cool conversations and uh, again if you want to find us that would probably be the easiest way but with that being said though let's get right into it millie welcome to the y2 podcast Hi, how are you going? Very well, thank you. It's, uh, it's, such a, it's such a pleasure to have the opportunity to sit down with you today. I want to, uh, before we get into today's chat, uh, which I'm really excited for, I also want to take a moment and publicly thank you as well. Um, we obviously met um, late last year at an event uh, organized by the lovely uh, Dara Simkin, a mutual friend, um, friend of the show as well. And you and I got talking about a, a project I was working on at the time. Now that project kind of got stalled a little bit, but the, the idea of this mini-series about asking really good questions to live really good lives, it kind of was an offshoot of, of that. And I really want to thank you for not only some inspiration around that, but more specifically reached out to you when I started to develop this mini-series and you were the one who actually said, hey Dustin, instead of just speaking to super awesome professionals and 
telling us what they said, why don't we hear directly from them? So I really want to, I really want to credit you. That was a, a simple, but it's already been a really profound experience for myself. And um, I'm really excited to, to bring not only those interviews, but obviously your interview to the Y2 Nation. So again, I want to thank you very much for, for, for all your help. Well, thank you for um, including me and everything and, um, and, and allowing me to be involved. It's very exciting. <laughs> I'm excited as well. But that being said, I want to jump right into it here today. And uh, as we were kind of chatting about before, I like to think I know a few things about what people do, given my past professional experience. But your, your role in what you do is one I'm not going to pretend to try to really understand. And in that, I would love if you can, just to start us off today, just to introduce both yourself, but also tell us a little bit more about what you do um, okay good uh, it's very I spend a lot of time explaining what I do it's kind of um, a shame in some ways because I would love that this work was more widely understood but it's um, half of the the job is actually teaching I guess in in many ways so it, it kind of makes sense um, so I'm Millie and I work as um, um, well, there are lots of different names for it. I tend to just now just go with designer because mm -hmm. I think it's um, more inclusive and not as specific. Um, and I think that some of the other terms are a little bit loaded and I'll get into that. But <laughs> uh, um, a, a designer, maybe a product designer, uh, I sometimes call myself a multidisciplinary designer, which I think encompasses that I design across um, visual user experience, um, touching on engineering and strategic. Um, but all of that is just buzzwords. Uh, <laughs> what I actually do is I work with people who are making things and I help them figure out whether they're making the right thing and then how to make that thing right. So how to um, make it so it, it is effective and engaging and delightful and hopefully makes people's lives better. So um, in, um, in you know, the formal sense, I teach like an intro to user experience course at General Assembly. Um, and I teach that uh, similar things to um, people at places like Academy XI and Code Like a Girl. Um, which means that I kind of teach people the basics of what we call user experience design, which is a term that was coined by Don Norman, um, who worked at, at Apple for many, many years and kind of invented it in a lot of ways. But previously to that, it's been called uh, interaction design or um, HCI. Um, it's been kind of just this, this ongoing thing that we as human beings have had to try and do, which is we invented computers and then we had to figure out how to make things for computers that humans could use. Um, and that is basically the thing that I do is I help people make things usually for computers or digital devices that humans can use. Um, and so I, um, I'm about to start a new role at a really cool company called Rate It. And um, they also have a really great podcast called <laughs> Customer Experience Leaders. But um, it, I'm starting with them as Director of Product and Design, um, which means that I'll be kind of sitting across their um, whole product process. So helping um, with their visual designers and bringing in user experience design and then also working with 
the engineers who are building it and then building for them a really interesting and fun thing that I like doing, building a research and, and kind of testing strategy. So um, getting them in touch with their users in a really impactful way that actually informs directly what they're going to be building, um, which is, that's basically my jam um, is, is getting people who are making things, building that really strong bond and, and empathy and, and connection with the people that are using the things that they're making. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. <laughs> Um, I suppose I suppose from there. I mean, there's there's I think there's certainly in that there's a, there's a lot to kind of dive into. But I want to kind of I want to go to the very the one hundred ones and to the to the basics to boil it right down. I love if you can take us through the principles in terms of how you start to. Um, ask questions and evaluate what can be such an abstract almost infinitely infinitely designable and configurable things such as you know experience i'm thinking you know the mac operating system versus mm -hmm. the pc operating system versus all the different ways that people set up apps and and the way that we sort of click and interact with them but i suppose that it's most basic what does the process look like in order to to translate that how do people start to interact with it to you know, creating something that people are, are more satisfied with or like it or helping to achieve the objectives of whatever you're trying to build. So um, a really interesting way to approach this is to, um, when we're talking about doing this kind of research, um, which is a huge part of what we do when we're doing user experience or design thinking, um, is to think about what kind of research that you're doing. So um, typically we kind of talk about two different kinds of research um, being generative and evaluative. So generative research is like, I'm trying to generate new ideas out mm -hmm. of this research. So this is really great if you have nothing, you know, you're starting from scratch, this is your first ever product or idea or whatever, and you are going out there and you're kind of, you have very little to go on. You've got maybe a, a vague hypothesis or some kind of sense of a clue, and you're going out there to meet people and, and just really, really deeply listen to them. And from what they're saying, kind of iteratively generate little snippets of knowledge that allow you to build to a kind of deeper hypothesis that then you can take into ideation and solutions. Evaluative research is slightly different in that you probably have something already and you're going in with a much more fully formed hypothesis and you're kind of just checking with people to see if you're on the right track. So I might use evaluative research if I kind of have I don't know, an online uh, website or a store or something and um, I am seeing a drop off in the data um, around page views on a certain page and I want to go out there and talk to people about their experiences using that page so I can evaluate hypotheses about what might be happening there. And those two different lines of questioning um, have, there's a lot in common, uh, mm -hmm. but there's, there's some kind of key differences and um, especially the differences kind of also come out with how you process uh, the answers that you get from those different types of research. So um, your generative research, you're going to have a much more probably diverse range of responses and you're going to have all these, you know, kind of some of them might not even be relevant and um, some of them might be kind of too specific in one area and some of them might be too general and then you're kind of sifting through opinions versus 
kind of uh, valuable feedback. And then um, evaluative research, you're really um, quite laser focused on trying to dig into little details and, and you're really uncovering these like deeper um, why, mm -hmm. <laughs> deeper whys underneath why uh, a behavior is being observed. Um, so you're kind of doing a, a type of questioning, which is a bit more like being a detective trying to kind of solve a case. Mm -hmm. Whereas your um, initial generative research is more like an artist trying to find inspiration, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, so the, yeah, um, but the one thing that I kind of always ask um, and I, I, I teach people to ask is a really kind of um, cornerstone question, like an unlocking question um, is very, very simple question. Um, and it's basically, tell me about the last time that you did this thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that could be, you know, if you're investigating a problem area and you don't have a product for it, you could ask them about, tell me about the last time you experienced this problem. And if you are doing evaluative research and you're asking about a specific feature or something that already exists, you can say, tell me about the last time you used this thing. And um, there's a lot of hidden power in that question because it, it kind of seems so obvious, you know, like it's, 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 <laughs> it's not technical, you know, it's yeah. a really basic question. Um, but it, it um, narrows down on a really key mistake that sometimes people make, which is they ask people to um, talk about like an imagined experience rather than a real one. And out of all the research that you do, the, the, pretty much the most important thing is that you are getting people to talk about their actual experiences and not just giving, asking them to give you their opinions on what they think things might be like. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I'm um, investigating maybe with you uh, and I'm uh, maybe I have an idea about making a product about managing food in your pantry as an example, I'm terrible at this. But I think it's a great example. I love that. <laughs> So I, I need to make sure that, um, firstly, you have a pantry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have a pantry and I say to you, what do you think it would be like if the food ran out in your pantry? And you're mm -hmm. like, well, I don't really have a pantry, but I kind of think it might be like this. Like you're, that's not actually that useful for me for mm -hmm. designing this product because um, it, I would get a much deeper insight from you if you told me about the last time that you went shopping and bought something that was already in your pantry because you'd be giving me all these little details that I couldn't predict. But because you're just imagining it and I was just imagining it, like we're just going to have like a combination of our like daydreams, which isn't going to actually end in good product design. It's going to end up in just hypothetical product design. Mm -hmm. So that question, even though it seems simple is very, very powerful um, because it, it, Firstly, people are very good at talking about things that they've actually done that have actually happened to them. So they, their answers are of a higher quality. Um, but they also, um, they, they, they're comfortable doing it. It's much easier for someone to, to talk about something real and um, that they maybe even care about and that kind of opens them up to you and allows you to build a bit more of an empathetic bond with them too. Hmm. So I suppose jumping off from there, so you might ask me, let's use, let's use the pantry example kind of thing. So you might ask me an initial question about, do you have a pantry or whatnot? And we establish I do. And you start to ask me about how did I feel about maybe buying something that was already in my pantry? 
I suppose, how do you continue to drill down in terms of really being able to understand um, that sort of uh, relationship maybe I have with the pantry? So I might, you know, say, oh, I was really bummed out about that. How do you sort of then start to develop a line of questioning to, to really drill down into a really good understanding of that? Um, so one of the things that is difficult for um, people learning how to do research in this way is um, getting uh, deep research and deep insights from people without kind of accidentally leading them along a design. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even though I might have some idea of like a really cool app that I'm making about pantry management, one of the um, really important parts of this kind of research is that you don't, you kind of, we kind of um, very clearly separate exploring the problem and exploring the solution. Mm -hmm. And so that means that when we are exploring the problem, we're not kind of biased by our, um, our kind of imagination of what the solution is going to look like. Mm -hmm. Because if we do that, if we bring that solution into the problem space, we start trying to fit people's problems into our already existing idea for the solution. And it just mm -hmm. means that we, we particularly ask like loaded questions and, and we kind of like ask and we're, we're hoping to hear the answers that we want to hear so that it fits in with our pre-existing model of how we think we're going to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the challenges for how to run these kind of interviews is, you know, you tell me about, um, you know, that you, you've, uh, once you know recently you went to the shop and you went and you were like oh do i need some flour and uh, maybe I, I i do i have flour to have self-raising flour i don't know which one it is i forgot to label the boxes i guess i'll just get both and then you get both of the flowers and then you come back and you open the pantry and you've already got all the flour and then you just you know you feel sad and <laughs> i've got too much flour <laughs> what am i gonna yeah. do and then bake for three days anyway so <laughs> you might tell me this um sorry but because you know, I might be a stranger to you and you may not fully understand, you know, the implications of the research and everything. You might just tell me like a really top level version of that. Um, and it might be up to me as the researcher to ask you, um, you know, firstly, go a bit deeper into the experience. So tell me a bit more about how it felt um, and, you know, why did it feel that way and why were you disappointed? And, did you, did the disappointment come from the fact that, you know, you, um, you were disappointed because you've made this mistake before, like how often has this happened? And then that can kind of open me up into more, um, kind of contextually relevant information. Like has this happened before? How often does mm. it happen? And then also look at, it may open up into what is kind of like marginalia, like research. So stuff that's like maybe adjacent to the problem in my mind, but could actually be really relevant when it comes to solving the problem. So for example, it might then be relevant to ask, like, uh, could you have called someone at home to ask them what was in the pantry? Do mm. you meet with other people? Um, uh, and, and, and how often do they go shopping and do they make the same mistakes or is it just you? Um, how did you, how did they solve these problems and what happens, um, to the food waste, you know, how do you deal with that kind of, so then it opens up kind of all these different avenues to explore, which depending on your experience, you might vibe with or not. So like, mm -hmm. this is me, like as a researcher, like kind of ideating on research questions, um, but some of them might not land with you. So you might be just say, oh no, that didn't, that didn't really happen or that, that didn't <laughs> really work. And then, and then we kind of might, I might have to kind of change tack and, and go in a different direction. And so one of the um, 
one of the, the other like key techniques around research is this idea of open questions versus closed questions. Um, so an open question is one that you can't really answer with like a one word answer. So it's not like a yes or no or one or two, three or like red or blue. It's, it's like it's a question that implores you to tell your story to me. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a really good technique because um, if I ask a good open question that prompts a good story from my research subject, I have a bit of time to maybe think as I'm listening to them, really, really listen to what they're saying. And then their deep answer gives me an idea for my next question. If you ask like a really survey style interview where I get, what's your favorite color? Red. What's your favorite number? One to 10, seven. Like there's, there's no inspiration in your answer that mm -hmm. informs the next question. So Open questions are really good in that they actually help you inform your next question. Um, mm -hmm. I'm also speaking very much from like my particular style of research, which is um, I don't tend to write a lot of questions going in. Um, I might have like a couple of key things that I'm investigating, but I don't really ever bring a lot with me. And that is partly because my background was I trained as a journalist. So I, you know, got pretty good at just having free form discussions with people, mm. but not everyone comes from the same background as me. And a lot of people do maybe bring in like a few questions and have them as backups for if the conversation, you know, um, slows down or they, they feel like they can't kind of continue to just generate them on the spot. Gotcha. Um, the other thing too, I'd love to kind of explore that to go back to the, to the generation of ideas as we talked about, you, you, you might be have like a small hypothesis and you're going out and you're starting to test that some things might be um, really, really not relevant, but I mean, as you go through such a, such an abstract concept and again, not trying to maybe be too married to the solution, still trying to be very open. How do you go about evaluating answers and starting to uh, balance that? Maybe there's something here I need to explore versus just trying to just data collect and have as many points as possible. How do you sort of go about managing that sort of very abstract, um, you know, kind of concept? Um, I think a lot of the evaluation can be done afterwards and um, I kind of listening to people is difficult and I think um, <laughs> how so if you don't well, me asking <laughs> I think being a really good listener is an underrated skill that a lot of people don't really properly have and I think people think that they're listening but actually <laughs> their brain is about 30% involved and then 30% of it is thinking about what they're going to say next. And then the rest of it is just like distracted. Mm -hmm. And I think being, being, doing research, like this kind of more formalized research. Um, one of the things that I noticed um, after doing, you know, especially extended stints of it where I was researching one or um, two or three people uh, a day doing interviews was just how deeply exhausting it is to have to be that actively engaged with someone for about an hour multiple times. And like, I would come home on those days and just be like quite, quite done. Mm -hmm. um, and like I teach as well. So I do it the other way where like, you know, I can teach people for like two hours and be up in front and teaching a class and I can come home and I feel kind of okay. Like maybe a little bit tired, but like pretty energized. Whereas actually just sitting down with, a person and deeply actively listening to them for an hour 
just is very, very intense. And I think that um, if you are trying to be a really active listener, you kind of need to be very, very strict about the other things that you're trying to do in that time. So if you are trying to actively listen, you're going to struggle to actively listen and take notes. Mm -hmm. You're going to struggle to actively listen and fuss around with a recorder. You're going to struggle to actively listen and evaluate on the spot how relevant that research is to your project. So I kind of encourage that you should really commit to the act of listening as a researcher and then try to separate that evaluation and synthesis into a mm. different stage. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the other thing that's really good about this is um, if you can do that, you can kind of um, take a few different interviews that you've done and combine all of the findings and then evaluate that together, um, which is a really core kind of concept of design thinking that um, if we, if we take data and we kind of uh, put it in a, uh, structured linear way, like, you know, word document or something, if you just like, you know, write all your notes up into a word document, um, that, that is useful for some things, but, um, it has some drawbacks. Um, so what we, we tend to do in design thinking, um, which is kind of this underlying framework for user experience design and these other, um, disciplines is we talk about modularizing and externalizing. And so if you modularize data, um, that's saying that rather than have all of it in one Word document or one spreadsheet, I put it all on like things that are small that I can move around. So mm -hmm. typically post-it notes are the thing that we, we use or index cards or something like that. Um, and and it's, it's, it's almost like a, a joke about how much user experience designers love post-it <laughs> notes, but for good reason because they serve a very important purpose. So modularizing them means that we can take what was a linear conversation and then we can reshuffle it and, and, and regroup those data points. And that allows us to split it into different paradigms. So one paradigm is what it was like going from the start to the end, the linear paradigm. Mm -hmm. And then another paradigm might be like emotionally, this is the things I felt good about. This is the things I felt bad about. This is the thing they were confused about. Another paradigm might be, um, recurring themes like, oh, they kept coming back to food waste or they kept coming back to um, hygiene or they kept coming back to um, their relationship with their partner and, and kind of drawing out how those themes were, um, you know, recurring through different parts of the conversation. And so this modularity allows us to recontextualize and reframe things, which is a technical term called reframing. So um, typically reframing is actually like quite common. It's like what we do all the time. Like if you go to, um, if you are like, I actually think this is actually what's going on with some, um, alternative healing therapies, for example. So if you go and get a, your tarot read, um, fundamentally what that is doing is giving you a way to reframe your own data mm -hmm. through the paradigm of tarot. So, um, you still have the same experiences, but someone is now saying, well, in the context of like this card, how would you interpret your experiences? Mm. That, that forces you to reframe. And so what reframing can do is it can give you this, um, essentially it can give you inspiration. It can, it can connect things in your mind that were previously not connected. And so modular, 
um, data allows us to recut it and reframe it. And then the externalization part of it is kind of the, the other side of that, which is that we take the, we take this modular data and we put it like up around us. We put it on walls, we put it like outside of our head. Um, and, and that's important because that allows us to kind of gain another level of um, connection and, and potentially build new insights because we can show it to other people. And, mm -hmm. and, and a huge part of user experience design and, and this kind of modern design process is about collaborative design. And that comes from this understanding that we want to make new connections about insights and, and that's how we, that's how we come to really powerful conclusions and that's how we make really interesting things. And uh, you can only have a limited amount of connections within your own brain and your own paradigm. Mm -hmm. And so by putting things externally, um, we can bring other people into our design and into our research and get them to look at it. And they might be like, oh, huh, that reminds me of this. And these two things are kind of similar. Did you notice? And you might not have noticed because for whatever reason, your biases from being involved in the research or whatever may have not kind of got you there. So um, we take these two things, modularization and externalization, and then we, and that, that kind of is like really forms like the basis of what we call like synthesis, which is basically this, this thing that you're talking about, which is like you've had the really deep conversation and then you're trying to evaluate and, and draw out insights and, and make sure that it's relevant and, and figure out kind of where to go next. Yeah, I, I love that idea. I think that is what you just talked about there is such a powerful tool. And I think the, the big thing that I've, I've struggled with when I, when I try to go through this without necessarily a very well thought out process is you're trying to do the, the research and the evaluation at the same time, right? So evaluating everything and it'll lead to a question in a moment. But I love that idea that it's like, okay, let me just quickly have some post-it notes, quickly knock out a few notes, put that down do a few things and then I can start to toy with that information and play with it. And I've seen, I've seen it done a little bit in terms of a U, uh, the UX design, but I think anybody that's trying to build anything that wasn't there before, you can, you can use that same thing, have a few conversations with people who might interact with that, you know, try to ask some questions, you know, using that same thing, write it out and then start to play with that and bring other people in to sort of start to said, synthesize that information. So it doesn't have to be super, super complex of building a new app. It could be as simple as some new process or, you know, um, basically any creating anything that wasn't there before, I guess. Eh? Totally. But I want to go back to something, and I think you touched on what I'm realizing is one of the biggest challenges. And I've, I've had a bit of a luxury of formally interviewing people in this for a little over a year and a half and then listening to myself interview people. But the idea of active listening and trying to devote as much brain power to being mindful as possible is something I think is probably one of the biggest challenges because if you're not listening to the right things, it's really hard to form the right questions and it sort of spirals down from there. Mm -hmm. So when you were teaching and mentoring people um, around these, this interviewing process, do you have general recommendations or suggestions that uh, of things that people can do to try to remain mindful of the conversation and be very present and try to get that 60, mm -hmm. 70, 80% of the way there instead of maybe the 30% that most people, you know, may be mm -hmm. sitting at? I think you're, the thing that you touched on there is, yeah, it is mindfulness fundamentally. Like it's this idea of, of being in the present and not kind of thinking ahead into the future. Um, and 
that is hard. (laughs) If you've ever tried to meditate, like meditation is hard because it is hard to get your brain to just settle down and, and be in the present moment. Like we are very conditioned um, and we are very like kind of neurotic um, (laughs) and we, and we are kind of encouraged to um, be constantly cultivating like our own personal to-do lists um, that just sit kind of in, in, um, in the corner of the desk of your mind is constantly distracting you. Um, and I think that, uh, is a habit that I have, I really personally struggled with for a very long time and was, is kind of like a basis, like a huge part of like, um, anxiety for me, um, and was very out of control a few years ago that I just kind of constantly felt, um, terrorized by my own like mental to-do list basically. Um, and, and I, and I felt like the, the thing that that encouraged me to do was just spread myself really too thin and try to do too many things, um, and commit to too much. And then I was the kind of person who would be like, Oh yeah, it's the weekend. And then I just like mm-hmm. completely instantly fill up my weekend. And then at the end of the weekend, just be sad that I didn't have a weekend. And, and so, repeat. yeah. Um, you know, uh, if, if you go into, if you buy into this stuff, it's like a type A personality problem. Um, and you know, I, I definitely, that, that resonates with me, but, um, I kind of found that when I started to actively work on that problem, like not learning how to interview people or, or be better at research, but that deeper problem of like learning how to focus basically, um, very, in a, in a very deep way, um, I unlocked a few other skills that I didn't have access to before because I could focus. And I, I, I know that people talk about this and it sounds like they've taken some sort of drug, but like, <laughs> I, like I found, I found that like the ability to actively listen to someone specifically, um, has been really, really useful, not just for, you know, doing design research or product research, but, even just if you are like, like I have been out at, like I went, <laughs> anecdote time. I went uh, to, I wanted to buy some cheese from a cheese shop in summer and uh, it was a hot day and I went to the cheese shop and they were like, it's too hot um, and our cheese has gotten too melty. And <laughs> so we've closed early because it's not time for cheese anymore. And I was really unhappy about this. Um, but I, I kind of, I just thought, you know, they're probably unhappy too. And I just had a chat with the guy who was, you know, the cheese shop owner. And I, I just wanted to know more about like how that could happen and, and you know, what were they going to do about it? And I just kind of had a really like a casual chat with him, but I'm better now at having chats with strangers because I can listen to them better. So I have mm. more ability to kind of move that conversation forward. Anyway, um, he, I think he just really appreciated that someone was listening to him and he ended up saying, well, you know, this cheese is actually fine. You can just have it. And I got the cheese, <laughs> wow. which is great. Um, but, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't um, like I kind of seemed that way. I just, you know, I, I have had a lot of practice at talking to people now and, um, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't like, oh shit, okay, no cheese. So now I'm instantly thinking about where to get the next cheese. Mm -hmm. I was just like, I'm here. 
in this place with this person and I'm just going to spend five, 10 minutes having a chat with them. And I focused on that chat and, and that chat went well because I was very present at the time. And previously I would have been too anxious and too unfocused to have been able to do that. I would have just been instantly thinking about how to solve this cheese problem in some other way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, like it's kind of like this idea of like problem solution splitting as well. Like I didn't instantly go into solution mode and think about how to, how to solve it in a different way. I went and explored the problem, <laughs> which is kind of funny, right? But like I did, I just kind of like wanted to know a bit more about it. And that meant that, you know, I kind of created this deeper connection, which worked out. Um, but yeah, d- to, to this point, like it's a transferable skill, right? Like it's not something that is like, this is not a technical user experience designer skill, like mm. learning to focus and um, be like hundred percent in your exploration of the thing that you're exploring rather than half in it and half thinking about, you know, the next prototype that you can build um, is something that you can apply to so many different things. I mean, think about how much better we'd be at our relationships if we yeah. um, had conversations with our partners where we really like, man- this is one of the hardest things, but managed to focus on how they were really feeling about something without being distracted by how it made us feel. Um, or if we could, um, how we can talk to our kids, if we can, if we can understand that, you know, um, what it, what it's like to be a kid in today's world is very different to what it was like to be a kid in our, in our lives and how building that deep understanding of, of their experience might help us be better parents. So, you know, we, this, this kind of deep listening is, um, look, it's certainly not easy, but it, you can see how it could be applied and, and how it can improve so many conversations. Um, the thing, the things that I did specifically to get there were I went to therapy, <laughs> I did a lot of <laughs> meditation, um, I practiced yoga, and I know that it's it's strange professional advice to say that yoga helps you be better at user experience design, but um, yoga forces you to stop thinking mm. and and be in your body and focus on what it is like to be in your body, and that is the same skill basically it's working the same muscle and I try to do it every day because I feel like it actually it's like yes it's like toning my body but it's kind of toning my mind and it's like toning that part of my mind that's good about that that does focus yeah look I I really appreciate you sharing all that and I mean just just to echo a bit of what you said is I've I've come to realize and I think I've understood this but other people through these conversations are really uh, corroborating my thoughts around this but mindfulness and being present to what's being said is 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 the start of of any conversation is the start of any question of any interaction and the vast majority of what people do as a profession is directly tied to being present and and said every pretty much everything we want in life is going to be in somebody else's head or our own head and mindfulness gives us that ability to be as open open and receptive to as much of that information as possible which allows us to synthesize and make sort of the best outcome from um, you know, really good, meaningful conversations with our partners, like your kids, your colleague, your clients, even yourself as well. Like, I'm sure, like you've spoken about too, really understanding that relationship with yourself, but being open to that conversation and receptive to that conversation. It's, it's amazing how, to me, the most important thing about asking questions 
isn't actually anything to do with words. It's this just completely uh, seemingly unrelated uh, concept. But on that though, I'm keeping it on with Tom, I do have to ask one last question for today. And as well as for yourself, do you have a favorite question that you, you like to go to or a question that's just served you really well in your life? Um, well, I mentioned one before, which is that really that opening question of like, tell me about the last time that this happened to you or that you experienced this. And I think that's probably my favorite, um, research question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like, and this is like a very kind of cliched one. Um, but how does it make you feel is like a very important question to ask and not just, um, not, not just in that phrasing and not just to other people. So I think how does it make you feel is a really important question to also ask yourself. So, um, you know, you might be, uh, you know, if you're like me and you experience anxiety or, or, um, you know, you have felt, um, you know, panic or you felt, you know, emotions that are a bit hard to, um, I guess, get, get some control over. Actually identifying what those feelings are is um, a very, very powerful tool. You know, people kind of talk about the fact that if you can kind of give something a name and you can kind of identify it, it starts to give it a bit of a shape. And if you can kind of understand its shape, you might be able to grab onto it. And um, sometimes just asking yourself, you know, how does it make you feel like, what is this feeling that I'm having right now? Um, And that's a very powerful self insight Mm. question. Um, And then asking that to other people um, can be just a really incredible way of building a human connection with someone because people often think if you're doing research for work reasons, that you are going to have a work kind of conversation. You know, you're going to be talking about like processes and um, you know, you're going to be asking them boring work stuff and, and it's very interesting how the tone of a conversation changes when it goes from like, oh, you know, what was it like last time, you know, you did your, your, your accounting or you used this spreadsheet or whatever. And how does that make you feel? And it's funny because mm. it unlocks people into this other more deeper emotional mode where they start actually kind of getting to know you and you start getting to know them. And it's incredible about how much research is, um, what other people might call soft skills, right? Mm-hmm. It's about like being friendly and making people comfortable and like cracking a weird joke so that they think you're a bit of a dork and then you're less intimidating to them. And, um, you know, like making, getting to know, ask them to talk about stuff that they think is irrelevant that becomes like hugely relevant because it allows you to like call back to later on in the conversation, which makes them feel like you know them and like all these kind of subtle people skills thing become just like the foundation of what it means to be a good researcher in um the uh, google ventures book sprint um which talks about this design thinking five-day intensive process where you um, do research um make ideas build a prototype um and then test it in five days um they talk about their in-house researcher who is like a master researcher and they said he's so good at doing research that you don't know when the interview is officially started. Mm -hmm. And I really like that because it's, I mean, I don't think it's deceptive. I don't think it's unethical. I think, you know, the people know that they're in a research interview, but it's kind of that beautiful way of, of, um, of understanding that when we're researching products and problems, we are trying to understand people fundamentally. Like we might think that, you know, we are building an app, 
but an app is just a proxy for solving a human problem. Mm -hmm. And so as researchers, we're exploring humans and their problems. And I, I love that idea because it, um, yeah, it really kind of, it makes me also feel like, you know, this is meaningful work and it's not just, you know, um, you know, silly kind of made up buzzwordy stuff. I feel like it's, it brings it down into this, this world of like empathy and, and humanity that really resonates with me. Yeah, look, I, w I wouldn't be surprised if you've inspired a few people to start thinking a little bit more about this, about this, uh, about this career. Um, really, this has been such a treat. It's always such a treat to be able to, to chat with you. I suppose for people listening, where can they uh, reach out to yourself and stay in contact with, with, with all the things you're doing? Um, I am on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is Mealy Jane, M-E-E-L-I-J-A-N-E. And I have a website, which is mealyschmidt.me. Um, and I'm sure that you can put those links somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Links definitely in the show notes. Millie, it's been such a treat. Thank you so much for, again, uh, your time today, but obviously just, you know, personally for, for all the inspiration and, and all your help uh, both today, but also behind the scenes as well through this project. It's, it's something I'm super passionate about. And today's conversation is, is just, a, it's just another reminder of why um, this mini series is something that I'm, I'm so passionate about. I'm so interested in. I think there's so much value for people. But uh, again, Millie, thank you so much for your time. And I'll look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you. Hey everyone, thank you so much again for listening to today's episode. Just remember, if you want to join in on the conversation, make sure you jump over to the social media handles. You're going to find us at Better Questions, Better Life on Facebook, Instagram, BQBL underscore on the Twitter. Of course, you can make sure you jump into the hashtag BQBL. Of course, you can check out our website at betterquestionsbetterlife.co. And I obviously, I want to take a quick minute again and thank our sponsor, YZ. Make sure you get started with your own 14-day free trial at yz.com. That's w-y-z-e-d.com. With that being said, speak to you next time.